recently our kids have gotten into the Chronicles of Narnia. We read the first book together, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about a family of four children who enter into another world where the king is a lion named Aslan. Uh, C.S. Lewis created the character Aslan as a representation of Christ. And there's this place near the beginning of the book where the children first hear of Aslan. They have not seen him, they have not met him, but at the first mention of his name, their hearts begin to burn within them. One of the children feels a sudden sense of terror, but another feels bravery and adventure, and another feels beauty and wonder, and the youngest child feels a great sense of joy and excitement. See, something deep down in their hearts is awakened as they hear his name, as they come to realize this Aslan is more than just a hero or even a king. There's something truly different about him. See, one of the key distinctions, when we talk about the Christian faith, one of the distinctions we have to make about our faith is that it's a faith that's not built on law or ritual or a path we follow or pillars that we uphold. All the traditional thoughts about religion don't really apply to Christianity because our faith begins and ends with a person. It doesn't begin and end with us and our ability to do or to measure up or to keep or to uphold. It's all about a person, Jesus Christ. But we can't stop there because most people, when they hear the name of Jesus, they have a, a fairly tame and likable Jesus in mind. They think of Jesus as a moral example or a good teacher or a peacemaker. And certainly all those things are encompassed in the person of Jesus. But the truth is, if that's all he is, if Jesus is only a great person, he really doesn't do us any good. And he certainly doesn't fit the picture that the Bible actually paints of him. No, just as Aslan was much more than a lion, so Jesus is far more than a great teacher. And our hearts and our minds must be awakened to who he really is. And so today we get a, a vivid and powerful picture of Jesus Christ, who he really is, what he's really done. And it comes to us right in the middle of Philippians chapter 2. Now, what's interesting about this portrait of Jesus is that it, it's tied into something that Paul is calling the church to be. We saw this last week. Paul is commanding humility within the church. Humility that will lead us to unity. Uh, last week we saw the command. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Consider others as more important than yourselves. Now, all by itself, that's a great moral code. Most people around the world would agree with that. The world would be a better place if everyone were less selfish and more humble. But remember, our faith is not built merely on moral codes, on good behavior. Our faith is built on a person, and Paul shows us that in a crystal clear way. Right after his command in Philippians 2, he calls us to look to Jesus Christ. That's where the command is rooted, because that's where Christianity is rooted. And what we have right here in verses 5 through 11 is uh, it's truly one of the great mountaintop verses in all the Bible. 
and you'll see why as we read it. Look with me at Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul's continuing this command to be humble, and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is much more to say about this scripture than one sermon can hold. Uh, but let's try to tackle it this way. Uh, let's look first at the scripture theologically. What is this scripture saying about Jesus? Big picture. And then we're going to look at the scripture again more at the heart of what Paul is trying to tell us. It's not just facts about Jesus in this scripture. It's revealing his mind and heart so that we might follow suit. So we're going to try to look at the scripture from both perspectives here. Um, first, what does the scripture tell us about Jesus? Uh, an awful lot. <laughs> but look with me at verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, when we see that word form, Jesus existed in the form of God, we typically think that form means outward appearance. That's how the word is, is used generally in English. But when Paul uses the word form, he speaks of the very nature of something, the stuff it's really made of, what it really is deep down. That's why some translations use uh, these words in verse 6. Some translations will say, Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. And I really prefer that way of saying it, at least in English, because Paul is saying Jesus is God. He's not like God. He's not similar to God. He doesn't give the appearance of God. No, through and through, this is his very nature. He has always been God. But he did not use his divine glory to his own advantage. He did not hold on to it. But verse 7 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Uh, some will take this verse to mean that Jesus was God, but then he became a person and he ceased to be God. Because you can't be both. You can only be one or the other. That is to say, Jesus emptied himself out of all of his divinity so that he could become like us. Um, but y'all, for, for Jesus to empty himself, that doesn't mean that he lost some of who he is. The idea of emptying here is this. Rather, Jesus, rather than seizing his glory for himself, he pours out his glory 
for others, for the sake of others. Uh, the emptying here is the ultimate statement of humility and selflessness. God becoming man. And notice that Jesus takes on the form, the nature, of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. So there are two things happening here simultaneously. Jesus never ceases to be God. Let's be very careful not to fall into that trap. He never ceases to be God. But he also becomes man. Not in a 50-50 kind of way, but 100% God and 100% human. Now, we struggle to have a category for that, right? We don't see how that makes sense. But the scripture affirms this. The scripture sees no contradiction. In John chapter 1, if we remember what John says, in introducing Jesus, he says the Word, capital W, the Word, that's Jesus, that's the divine Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John saw no contradiction. Uh, even Jesus' own enemies understood this claim about him, even if they refused to believe it. There's a place in John chapter 10 where the enemies of Christ pick up stones to kill him. And Jesus asks them why. And their response is, for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood what he claimed to be, fully God and fully human. Well, you notice in verse 7, what we just read, that word bondservant, that's a key word, because a bondservant is, is a person who willingly subjects himself to the service of others. When Jesus became man, it, it would have still astonished us if Jesus would, would have condescended and become came someone great, uh, the richest, most powerful king in the world. God became that kind of person. As crazy as it is for God to become man, we, would, we at least would understand that he would come to the highest position possible. But no, what Paul affirms in Philippians 2, when Jesus came down, he emptied himself and willingly chose the lowest rung on the ladder. Paul says it in a different way in 2 Corinthians, but he communicates the same idea. Paul says, Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Do we get the idea? Though Jesus possessed all heavenly glory, being in very nature God, yet for your sake he emptied himself. For your sake he entered into poverty. And that's verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, if we think about God, um, God is the only being in the universe who has no need for humility. There's nothing about God that is defective or incomplete. God has no needs, no lack, no wants. Jesus has no reason to be humble. There's nothing outside of him greater than him 
that he would need to submit to in humility. But for our sake, the scripture says, he humbled himself. No one else humbled him. No one embarrassed him, humiliated him. He chose it for himself. Humility. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, his death on a cross. As God, Jesus emptied himself to serve us. And as the God-man, he humbled himself to die for us. All in fulfillment of God's eternal plan to bring salvation to the world. That's what's going on in this scripture. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of the Bible commentators, uh, speaks on this verse and he says, Here is where the one who as equal with God has most fully revealed the truth about God. That God is love and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice, cruel, humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those he loves. See, there, there simply is no category for Jesus as a good man and a moral teacher. Either Jesus is the God-man who died and rose again, or he's nothing. He's nothing more than a footnote in the history books. And so it really is essential for us to grow in our understanding of the deity of Jesus, he is God, the incarnation of Jesus, that he became man, and the death of Jesus as obedience to the Father's will. We need to understand and be solid on those things. But at the same time, y'all, we can't miss the heart of what Paul is saying right here in this chapter. Paul's intention is not merely to give us the facts about Jesus so that we can be studied up on his nature. No, Paul is trying to show us something deep about the heart or the mind of Christ. Remember, that's how the whole scripture starts back in verse 5. Have the same attitude or the same mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's desire here is to illustrate, to show us a picture of the mind of Jesus in the hopes that we might take on that same mind, that same attitude ourselves. And so let's look at the, the scripture again from that perspective, looking at attitude or mind or heart, the defining motivation within a person. That's what we're looking for now when we look to Jesus. Uh, if, you, if you watched recently the documentary on Michael Jordan, something that comes up over and over again is his mindset. Even Michael's own dad spoke about it. If you tell Michael he can't do something, he won't stop until he proves you wrong. He will obsess over proving you wrong. That was the frame of mind that consumed him. That's part of what made him great. Well, in the same way, when Paul talks about the mind here, the mind of Christ, he's not talking about a passing thought, but a defining thought. Something that controls the behavior. Something that produces definitive action. What is that mind of Christ? Well, let's read the verses again. And we'll see, not just facts, but we'll see heart. We'll see mindset. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, do a little thought experiment with me here as we think about these verses. I want you to imagine three scenarios. Try to imagine, first, possessing perfect glory, total authority, eternal beauty, endless magnificence. Try to imagine that there is nothing at all that you need. You have no deficiencies whatsoever. You are perfect. Would you willingly set all of that aside to become a helpless baby in a feeding trough? Knowing that you'd spend a lifetime of poverty in the dust? Knowing that you'd experience a lifetime of rejection and grief and pain, a life that would end forsaken in misery? Would you go for that? Because that's the heart and mind of Jesus. Or try to imagine yourself walking around infused with miraculous power. You can read people's minds. You can control nature. You can create and multiply. Would you go your entire life never once using your power for your own benefit, but only for the good of others and only for the glory of God? Or in other words, would you possess all that power, but willingly make yourself the bondservant of everyone else? Because that's the mind and the heart of Christ. Or thirdly, try to imagine being perfect, morally perfect and righteous, never once indulging in sinful desire, always being honest and wise and loving and pure. And yet at the end of your perfect life, rather than being applauded and rewarded, you are condemned. Not for your own sins. There are no sins to condemn you. But you are condemned for the sins of everybody else. Would you cry foul in that case? Would you try to run away? Or maybe would you uh, call 10,000 angels down to your rescue to get you out of there? Or... Would you endure it all for the sake of the world that has rejected you? Because that's the mind and the heart of Christ. And I hope we start to see more vividly the wonderful depth of a scripture like this. When Paul says, have the same mind in you, have the same humility in you, which was in Christ, we're not just being given a moral example. If we were, of course, we'd, we would just throw up our hands and give up. There's no way I can live up to the example of Christ. Now, we're not being given less than his moral example. We are being told to follow him, to imitate him. But Paul gives us so much more than that. He's pointing us to Jesus as a Savior, as the divine Son of God come to save us. Y'all, 
the humility of Jesus Christ is not just our example to follow, it is the answer to all our sinfulness and lostness. It's his humility that brings us life. I heard Tim Keller say it kind of like this. He said, I want you to go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Most of us know that story very well. We're very familiar. And so we can help connect the, the ideas here. Adam is in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And Adam sins. Remember, he takes a bite of the fruit. Adam's sin, all throughout the scripture, Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's sin is representative of all sin. See, when Adam took of the fruit and ate it, he was grasping for God's throne, for God's authority. Remember, that was Satan's lie. God can't be trusted. God's holding out on you. Eat this fruit and you will be like him. You will ascend and be like God. Adam was not equal to God, but he sought to be. That's why he took a bite. Adam did not humble himself in that moment, but he sought to exalt himself. He believed that somehow there was life that he was missing, and he could find it apart from God. And that really is the nature of all sin. That is selfish ambition and empty conceit. Grasping for God's authority assuming that there's life to be found if we will ascend, if we will exalt ourselves and seek life outside of God. But y'all, do you see what Jesus has done? Look at the great reversal here in Philippians 2. Jesus, who was equal with God, emptied himself. Jesus, who was exalted, humbled himself. Jesus, who lived perfectly unto God, did not hold on to his own life, but laid it down. See, whereas Adam died as a result of his own disobedience, Jesus died for the sake of our disobedience. Adam was grasping for something that didn't belong to him. It did belong to Jesus, but he willingly let it go. Adam was trying to rise up to be something greater than himself. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was exalted, but came down low. Adam died to God and was cast out of the garden. Jesus died for us. And therefore, we have life in his name. See, we follow in Adam's footsteps when we sin but Jesus has reversed that great curse. Jesus has done what humanity was never willing to do. We wanted to go up. He came down that he might give us what we could not find apart from a Savior. Y'all, when Jesus died, um, darkness fell over the land. Remember that? When Jesus died, the disciples were despondent and defeated. When Jesus died, all hope seemed to be lost. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Look what happens in response to the death of Christ. This part of the scripture that we haven't really looked at yet, Philippians 2, verse 9. For this reason also, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What happens when Adam exalts himself? Sin enters in and he is cast out of the garden. What happens when Jesus humbles himself all the way to the bottom? We are saved, and he is exalted. Exalted to the highest possible degree. And now for all eternity, we're told, to the glory of God the Father, everyone in all creation, everyone, will bow to Jesus, will confess his lordship. He will be honored to the utmost forever. Now, this is a lot, I know. I told you it was too much for one sermon. It really is. But let, let's try to boil it down just for today uh, as we close. Jesus is our example of humility, yes. But before he can be your example, he must be your savior. Let, let's just recall what this scripture is about. Jesus willingly chooses humility and death. Why? To enter into our darkness and rescue us from sin. He didn't do it on a whim. He didn't do it to, to prove that he could. He did it for us. He did it out of his great love and mercy. And for Jesus to come all the way down to the bottom for us is a reminder that salvation comes as a gift entirely of grace. If Jesus came down to you, you don't need to come up to meet him. You don't need your good works or your good intentions. You don't need any promises or rituals or any other such thing. All you need is the humility to look to him alone and to trust him to receive from him his great mercy and salvation. We are saved in humility. It's when we let go of our own sense of righteousness. It's when we let go of our, of our own failure or whatever else it is that may define us and we look to Jesus Christ alone, the one who came down to save. And friends, even if you've been a Christian for 60 years, this is the blessed privilege that we have each and every day, ongoing every day, to look in fresh ways to look upon our Savior and to humbly receive him and trust him. That never gets old. That never goes away. And then, having received him, the scripture says we walk in him. We live in him, for him, with him. We develop a mind of humility that Christ himself possessed. Now, I mentioned this last week. There is no humility light switch that we can turn on and off. What Paul is commanding of us, this kind of humility, it takes shape day by day. It's slow developing. It just is. But here's our encouragement. When we follow Jesus, when we obey his word... He always takes us downward. And I mean that in the best possible way. 
to follow Jesus is to become a servant. To follow him is to become unselfish and others-centered. We become compassionate and sacrificial. We become those things because that's who he is. If you follow Jesus, he will take you gloriously downward and make you like him. The one who became servant of all, who gave his life for us, that is the mind of Christ. You cannot follow Jesus without becoming more and more a humble and godly person. And y'all, when God calls us to be humble, there's a glory in that. I just use that term, gloriously downward, he takes us. It, that really is true. When God calls you to be humble, he's not saying, you're unworthy, go stand in the corner. No, when God calls us to humility, he's bringing us into his own heart. He's calling us into life with Christ, a life that glorifies God, a life that sheds light into the world. He makes us more and more like Jesus. And Jesus was gloriously humble. Is that what awakens in our hearts when we hear his name? Just as the children heard the name of Aslan and their hearts began to burn, what happens in your heart, in mine, when we hear the word, Jesus? Was he more than a great teacher, a good man, a peacemaker? Was he God in the flesh who lowered himself for our sake that he might make us new? If that's who he is, and if that's what he's done, then may God give us hearts to trust him and by his grace, may we become more and more like him. Let's pray. Father, what a true joy it is to look upon the person of Jesus Christ. And for us to read Philippians 2 today, I pray, Father, that it's, it's like looking into the sun. We can't really take it in. We, we, we don't really want to look too closely. It's too magnificent for us. I pray, Lord, that we would not, in our own minds and hearts, read a scripture like this and just see Jesus as small somehow, but that our, our view of him would grow and magnify. He is greater than, than all our mind and heart can contain. And yet, Lord, in his greatness, we see what he's done. He came down as one of us. And even lower than that, he came down as our servant and our sacrifice. Father, give us hearts to see Jesus Christ in this way. As one who had no reason to be humble and yet chose humility to save us. To bring us into your family. As children now to a heavenly father. Lord, refresh us in the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, to look upon him, to trust him, to love him, Lord, as the Savior who has lavished all grace and mercy upon us. And Lord, in that way, would you make us humble today? If all of life is grace, if everything we are is a gift, then Lord, make us gloriously humble. Bring us down 
um, in a way that makes us like our Savior. Make us uh, of the same mind as Jesus. To desire to be servants, to desire to, to empty ourselves for the sake of others, to desire compassion and sacrifice and generosity, to live this life as if nothing truly belongs to us at all. It is all yours, and we will expend ourselves for your glory. Every moment, Lord, that you give to us on this earth, that is so high and lofty for us uh, to think of life that way. But Lord, as we follow Jesus, make it so. Give us hearts that are truly humble and take joy in that humility, not shame. To go low, to go downward, is to be where Jesus came to be. And Lord, give us um, great joy in that. Give us great desire to take that place of humility to be like Christ and to live for his glory in this world. And Father, remind us of your great promise. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We will enjoy his glory forever, raised up with him, not because we grasped for it and reached for it ourselves, but because we received it with open and humble hands. All the glory that you came to achieve is now ours because of Christ. Lord, remind us that that is the glory that awaits us as we live humbly in this world day by day. Help us with the grace that we desperately need for these things to be true as we step uh, into, Lord, uh, the life and the mission that you've called us to be, uh, to be about. We love you and we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ, for all that he is. Lord, let our hearts be awakened more to him today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.